Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week, we come to you from... The biggest little city in the world, as they like to call themselves, Reno, Nevada, at the Pepper Mill Resort and Casino Right here in Reno. I've, I've been coming to the Peppermill Resort for a long time, and the person who's laughing at me right now is the Honorable Mayor of Reno. Welcome. We're going to let you get away with Peppermint because there's some sitting in front of you. Oh, I see some. Okay, so thank you. See, there, that's why. Okay, Hillary <laughs> Sheevy, Mayor of Reno, thank you for joining me. <laughs> thank you for having me. This city was founded in 1868, about the same yeah. time that the train showed up here, yeah. right? You've been mayor now a little longer than two years, coming up on three, I think. Right. Uh, and yet what's interesting about your job is that you also get to still be who you are. You still own a clothing company. You're still, right, you're, right. you're a hyphenate. Right. And I was born and raised here. Yeah. So um, I absolutely love Reno and um, probably its biggest cheerleader. When people come to Reno who are coming to visit you or coming for the first time, never been here before, what's the biggest surprise to them? I think people are really surprised of the incredible landscape. I mean, look outside the window right now. It is absolutely breathtaking. You mean from the Peppermint Resort? No. Yes, yeah, yes, exactly. From the Peppermint. But I mean, look at the view from, from where we're sitting. It's it's tremendous. So I think people don't realize the landscape that we have here. Certainly when they visit Lake Tahoe, it's absolutely breathtaking. But then 
Reno has so much to offer, and I think that's where people are really surprised. I mean, we have so many special events that happen. I was just um, speaking with a woman. She said, gosh, I love Reno. I always go to the balloon races. Every time I'm on a flight. I used to go to the air races. Oh, the air races are tremendous as when well. When those P-51s come around those pylons, unbelievable. it's unbelievable. Right? Isn't it unbelievable? Unbelievable. So every time I travel, people always mention a special event like Hot August Nights. And the cars are absolutely tremendous. So there's a lot going on in Reno, and I think... And yet it's also a hub, meaning you are, sure. you know, you want to go to the mountains? They're there. You want to go to the lakes? They're there. You want to go skiing? San Francisco? San Francisco. It's all doable. Right, right. But that's why we are a hub for manufacturing and distribution, because of where um, Reno is, you know, right where we're positioned, is, is an very easy in and out. And obviously, you've been to our fantastic airport. I'm a huge fan. I, I like to joke... When I first came to the airport, it was named for a guy who wasn't dead yet. It was <laughs> Howard Cat, right? Come on. He was the, I said, you named an airport for a guy who's still alive? That's not a good thing. And then he died, and you changed the name of the airport. How does that work? Yeah, tell me how that works. Right. Ms. I, I don't know. I don't know how that, <laughs> that works, but I am, I'm a huge fan of our airport. It brings in uh, $2 billion every year of economic impact. I just did the state of the city there. Because I, I think people don't realize um, how instrumental an airport is to your region. You know, one of the biggest problems that we see around the country right now is cities that are on the verge of, I won't say collapse, but they're challenged because of, of airlift disappearing. Right. Right. How does a city like Reno keep the planes coming in? Because, you know, we've gone from eight airlines in this country competing for 88% of the market share to That's four right. airlines that own it and don't think they need to compete. Absolutely. Well, I, I have to tell you, I, um, I, the staff at the airport and the airport authority is absolutely tremendous. I have never seen um, such hospitality and the relationships that they have with all the airlines. And also, I think because Reno, I mean, obviously, we were the hardest hit in the recession, um, highest in foreclosures and unemployment. We've completely rebounded obviously with tesla amazon switch apple these big they're all coming in right all these big companies and so that will drive the airlift absolutely so now more than ever certainly from silicon valley because we're we really um have this big tech movement that's happening here so we're adding a lot of flights and um 98 of of the jet blue flight which is the direct flight that i absolutely love is the direct to new york um and it's a red eye. It's fantastic. 98% of that is filled. So wow. it's, it's tremendous. I'm talking to Mayor Hillary Sheevy of Reno, Nevada, who's also a figure skater. Oh, in my last life. In your last life. <laughs> and you competed. <laughs> yes, I did. It was funny when I ran for, for mayor, people would say, how do you expect to win? And I said, well, I'm a figure skater. We just sort of used, you know, bats. That's what we do. <laughs> That's how we're going to win. No, I'm, I'm just very competitive. I... Um, you know, I, I, I grew up born and raised here. This is one of the things about Reno too. And you talk about what are people surprised with the, um, winter wonderland is, is tremendous. So, um, skiing here is fantastic. Snowboarding is fantastic, but it truly is you, a lot of people love Reno too, because you can literally open up your back door and you are, um, you are right in the middle of this playground like you know people just will ride their bikes or motorbikes or a anything um athletic 
this is a very athletic city. But with all this growth, you have to practice some some serious sustainable tourism practices. Otherwise, you're going to lose it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because coming up right after you, we have Costas Chris, who's the editor-at-large for National Geographic Traveler, who spends all of his time monitoring this around the world, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, sure. That's got to be one of your biggest challenges. Absolutely. And we just talked about that at Stay the City and certainly uh, managing that growth. Right. Yeah. So there's sometimes that be careful what you wish for, because we're constantly like, oh, move to Reno, move to Reno. Right. And, and the so, next thing is they're coming. Right. Yeah. Right. So you do. You absolutely have to balance it. And certainly as mayor, that's probably weighs on me the most is, you know, with the challenges of infrastructure and housing and things like that. And so that certainly drives a market. But you also have to continue to provide a great quality of life for your residents. Right. Now. One of the things that's just been happening is you take an airline like Hainan Airlines in China. Since 2006, they've opened up 75 new routes. They now have a route nonstop from China to Las Vegas, it's right? Unbelievable. When's the next route from China to Reno? Oh, we're hoping next week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nothing surprises me anymore, honestly. Reno, I was just telling the Wall Street Journal that we're the cool kids. It's really interesting because there really is this huge trajectory now around Reno. And, um, you know, we're getting ready to make some big economic development announcements. Can't talk about those right now. But um, I, so I think it's a really exciting time to live, work, and play here. Exactly. And last but not least, I can't let you go without talking about organ donation. Oh, because something near and dear um, to my heart. Uh, yes, tell the story quickly. Well, um, <laughs> I'm just—I'm very, very fortunate. I was training to be an Olympic figure skater. Unfortunately, I became very ill with strep throat. A lot of people don't realize that strep throat actually can 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 attack your organs, and um, it attacked my kidneys. And I ended up on dialysis, extremely sick. I was training in Colorado Springs at the Olympic Training Center at the time. And then after that, um, I was on dialysis, and my sister came to me and said, I'm a match. I want to save your life. And she saved my life. Toto, I'm repeating we're not in Kansas anymore. little city in america that's correct and that person's talking about he doesn't he doesn't call himself a newsman he calls himself what john a storyteller with a nose for history there you go that's john tyson who's been here how long 37 years so you've seen all the changes i have seen all the when, changes. when i first came to reno I, i'll tell you how far back i go back i go back to reno about 40 oof, 46 years ago i was working for newsweek and I came up here because in those days, Reno was called the divorce, the divorce capital of America. And the photo ops would be women who were about to be divorced going over to a bridge over the Truckee River and throwing their wedding rings in. And Joe, that's a true story. Uh, a lot of people consider that to be a myth, but it's actually very, very true. Guy Rocha, who's one of our historians here in Nevada, proved that out, that uh, that's exactly what they did. They would throw their rings into the river. So that's what started gold panning in Reno, <laughs> because no. people can actually go out there and, uh, and find stuff, right? Among other things, yes. Um, among other things. <laughs> what else am I going to find in the Truckee River, John? Well, it, it depends who you talk to. I'm talking to you. <laughs> well, I don't know. You've got to find a lot of debris because of all the floods that we've had around here in the last few years. Sure. 
But when I first came up here, uh, there were no high rises. No, not in 1971. Around 1973 uh, or four, I think that's when they first built the MGM. Yeah, it was about 1979. Oh, it was 79. That's okay. what caused the big changes here in Reno. We were no longer a sleepy little town right. where everybody knew everyone. I remember when Governor uh, Callahan was the uh, governor here, he could walk along the streets and say hello. People would call him by name because we were a small-knit uh community. Now, right. I never lived in Reno. I lived in, I've been in Virginia City for the last 37 years. Sure, but if you're in Virginia City, it's not difficult to get to Reno. No, it's not. It's about 22 miles. Yeah. And up the, up and down the Geiger grade, which scares a lot of people. But on the other hand, before there were guardrails on the Geiger grade, you, a drug could make it down in 7.6 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. But when they built the MGM, then they built, I think, a big warehouse for Sears, and then the, the U.S. Postal Service. I mean, they, they, people started looking at, at Reno as a place that they, they, they could employ a lot of people. It wasn't expensive to live here. The real estate base was not out, outrageously priced. Uh, you had suburban communities like Sparks. That's correct. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember Spar- homes in Sparks selling for $32,000. Yeah, that's very, very true. But that all changed after the MGM came to town. Right. And now you have more sky rises and high rises and the whole deal. We're still growing. We're still growing by leaps and bounds, especially now that the Tesla plant is going in at the USA Parkway over uh, east of Sparks. And that is called a gigafactory because it's one mile long, one half mile wide. So it actually creates its own atmosphere. Absolutely. It's like the Boeing plant up in Washington. <laughs> it can rain in there. Yeah. It can actually rain in there. Well, we have been we have some people around here that have been known to create their own weather also. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I remember the Mustang Ranch. I remember the Mustang Joe Ranch. Joe Conforte. Yep. That's, right? Yep. That's we did it. a story on him. Oh, my God. I mean, what a crazy story that was where he was, prostitution was legal. That is correct. Yeah. But what may not be known was people... Uh, Story County, where I live, made it legal, but not legal in Washoe County. And so there was a young district attorney by the name of Bill Raggio that got so disgusted with him because he would go to produce his wares in Washoe County, and then when the heat got too close, he would move to Story County. Well, Bill Raggio, who ended up being one of our most esteemed senators, decided, I'm going to put a stop to this. We burned him out. <laughs> so basically, at the end of the day, it's cowboys and Indians. Yeah, I'll tell you what, we're still part of the wild, wild west, yes. And it still is, really. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, does the train still come in? Yes, it does. Amtrak still comes to town. It does. But during World War II, there were 22 passenger trains a day coming through Reno. A day? A day. Moving troops? Moving troops, moving people going to and from, yes, because Reno is on the trans. Uh, Transcontinental Railroad. It was uh, railroad came to town in 1868. That's when the name was changed to Reno, named after a uh, Civil War general. Um, prior to that, it was called Lakes Crossing because this was part of the Immigrant Trail, and they guy built a bridge to so the immigrants could get across the the Truckee River. And uh, it was and that's before they were throwing the wedding rings in. That's right, before they were throwing the <laughs> wedding rings in the river. But anyway, his name was Lake, and so it was known as Lakes Crossing. I got it. Well, bottom line is, they're not 22 trains a day now. No. You're lucky if there's no. one. And we would, had a lot of freight trains go through you know, uh, Reno, but they built a trench, which caused a lot of controversy back in those days. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. It's 
speaking with storyteller John Tyson, who lives about 22 miles up the road in Virginia City. Uh, let's talk about the history of the Peppermill, because I remember when it wasn't this big at all. I remember it was just a coffee shop. And what, what year was that? Well, it's going back to 81, 82, somewhere yeah. in there. Um, it was just a coffee shop, and what I remember about it mostly had this multicolored sugar that you could have put in your coffee or whatever you're going to use sugar for. And then it eventually started to grow as the town began to grow. And then you had a lot of competition between the Atlantis and the MGM Grand and the Peppermill. Now, the MGM Grand is not called the MGM it's Grand not anymore. the MGM Grand. It's called the, uh, what, High Sierra, something like that. Right. Yeah. And now, but, but this grew into it, do a major casino and hotel. It is a very major casino and hotel. It does quite, quite well. What's the one change in Reno that you don't like? Well, it would have to be the traffic. Um, we, when Reno was first developed for traffic, we had nowhere near the traffic problems that we have today. And so that's what's caused a lot of uh, consternation, a lot of violations of the sense of humor when you're trying to get from one place to another. Well, you weren't designed for cars. You were designed for horses. Well, you know what? I made my living horseback for a good many years, and I have no regrets. <laughs> but you didn't ride a horse into town today. No, not today. I didn't. Not because I couldn't figure out how to put snowshoes on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when you do come to Reno, what do you see that, I mean, because, you know, you talk about the, the old, what, the old Sazerac Saloon, mm-hmm. right? Yep. That's still around? I don't know the Sazerac here. There was a, a Sazerac up in Virginia City. Right. Yeah. And uh, that was owned by Mike and Annette Daniels. And when I came to town in 1981, no home, no job, $400 in my pocket, and uh, two roping horses and a <laughs> one-eyed dog and a real mad wife. I don't have any of them anymore. <laughs> but anyway. So we're talking to a free man. Yeah. Well, I was. Uh-oh. I'm no longer a free man anymore. Uh-oh. But anyway, that being But are said, you a happier man? Oh, yes. Okay, I'm just double-checking. Well, you know, I'm 72 years old and a cancer survivor. What do I got to be unhappy about? You wake up every morning and you go, I'm happy to be here. I'm very happy to be here. And indeed. I'm happy you're here. <laughs> I'm glad to be here, too. <laughs> so, you still ride the horses? No, I gave up. We sold a ranch uh, several years ago, and we were running cattle on a lot of open area, a lot of open range, but we still had to feed them because the range was so poor. But no, we... Turns out that we ended up being a nonprofit organization, and that was not the way we had planned it. <laughs> <laughs> now you were a deputy sheriff. I was a deputy sheriff. I started my law enforcement career in uh, California in 1970, and I retired from the Story County Sheriff's Office 2005. And your most difficult case? We haven't got time. <laughs> there was a bunch of. Them. Okay, give me the craziest or the funniest. Oh my gosh! Uh, uh, give me a case that really exemplifies what Reno is. Well, that's hard. To, that's hard to say because I lived up in Virginia City. Of course, but that's only twenty-two miles away. That's only twenty-two miles away. That's very true. We we had uh, up in a Comstock. We had a lot of problems because of tourism. Now you wouldn't think that tourism would cause a lot of problems, but you get a lot of people come up that Geiger grade and they're scared. There's hardly any place to park, and they will try to. You you can see traffic all backed up because here you have a Cadillac trying to park into an area designed for a. a uh, be, uh, uh, a smaller car. Right. And so everybody is sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting. And you can just hear what's going on inside the car when you hear mom say, you can't park in there, your car's too big. And he's going to say, I'm going to try it simply because she said he couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so it goes on and on and on. But traffic was a major problem we had in Virginia City. And it still is, probably. It still is because we're still a small town. There's only about a 1,000 of us that live on the Comstock itself, not in counting the Virginia City Highlands where I live. And there's about 350, 400 homes out there. So what you're basically telling me is at least in Virginia City, you can still walk down the street and say hi to everybody. You can, absolutely. 
except for the idiot in the Cadillac who, <laughs> tried who, to park who can't park his car. Especially in a spot designed for a VW. <laughs> but I mean, when you were when you were deputy, was it Cowboys and Indians? Well, as a matter of fact, I was a mounted deputy. I patrolled uh, by horse, by horse, forty thousand acres of open range, and sleeping out in the bush at night. I did that for twenty-five years. Wow. Yeah. Well, when I was a correspondent for Newsweek out of Houston. I went riding with the last of the Texas Rangers who were still looking after cattle rustlers. Well, we still have that here, too. I was a deputy brand inspector for several years, part of the enforcement division, because cattle rustling is still a big problem in this state. Even now? Even now. Come on. No, no, absolutely. And the reason why, have you priced a steak in a supermarket lately? It's pretty expensive. And so the more expensive beef is, the more the chance of rustling. Wow. So basically, it's dum dee 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 dum dee dee. Right? <laughs> but you actually did you catch them? Did you catch them? Yeah, rustlers? we did. We caught we caught cattle rustlers and we caught uh, um, horse thieves. We didn't hang them, but they, <laughs> they certainly the judge <laughs> we didn't had, hang them. But the judge sure made short work of them. Okay. I had one case where a rancher couldn't sell his cows, so we pushed them up on the rattle, uh, pushed them up on the railroad tracks. Train came along and hit them, and then he sued the railroad. He then tried to sue the railroad because the railroad would go ahead and, and pay the claim without checking it out. But when I went and looked at it, I said, now, why would all these cows get up on the tracks and being followed by a guy horseback with a shod horse? This didn't make sense. Well, we put it all together. Some of us worked on it. And sure enough, we found out what happened. And so we uh, made sure the railroad didn't pay the claim. Right. But there's still a lot of dead animals, but a big special on stake that week. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go well, I've been coming to Reno since 1971. I've seen so many different changes. I remember flying up here on Uzair West, the big yellow banana, uh, when they used to fly up here. Um, and uh, there were no high-rises. There was no... There was no real Reno, except there was the downtown area, which was always interesting because it, it had already been preserved, more or less. Uh, but then, of course, comes development, comes change. And then the real question is, can you still maintain the character and the culture of a city that's got such great history? And joining me now is the man who has the answer to that, Colin Robertson, who's uh, he's an educator, he's an urbanist. But you're very much involved in the, in the revitalization, if you will, of, of downtown Reno. That's right. Peter, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I'm involved with a project called the West Second District, which is a proposal for a redevelopment of and revitalization of downtown Reno, a 17-acre site just to the west of Virginia Street. Um, but, but have you been able to to get buildings designated as historic landmarks to preserve them? Absolutely. There's a really robust and very rich historic resources and historic preservation community in Reno, Nevada, and they are... Uh, doing a lot of great work to help preserve those buildings that are the kind of character and historical fabric of this community. I mean, for somebody who's not been to Reno before, who's listening to the show, and you're going to come down to downtown Reno, uh, there's still that sign, right? Yep. Biggest little city City. in the world. There it is. Um, Is there still the bridge over the river? There is a new, beautiful new bridge that's just been constructed in the last 18 months over the Truckee River that replaces the historic Virginia Street Bridge, which was causing a lot of uh, problems for floods and uh, sort of just pipeline uh, flow through on the traffic side over Virginia Street. But that new bridge is just beautiful, and it's uh, it's a tremendous asset to the city center. And is anybody still throwing their rings into the river? 
I don't think that that <laughs> happened quite as often as people think, but it's uh, you see people walking over that bridge thinking about that question all the time. So basically, it's, it's called the Bridge of Size. That's right. <laughs> the, the former bridge was in any way. <laughs> What's your biggest challenge? Because you have so many people who are moving here, right? You have new businesses over here, the Tesla factories and, and high-tech stuff coming in. There's enormous growth and really wonderful changes coming to Reno associated with a kind of revitalization and a new kind of economic structure. A lot of Reno's history has been driven by different kinds of boom and bust economic cycles and the work of Edon and the Chamber of Reno and Sparks has really driven toward a more tech-oriented economy and that's been a tremendous asset, but the growth that comes associated with that is one that this community is challenged to plan for and design for. Because it's gotta be sustainable growth. It's gotta be sustainable growth. And I, it's I remember, be, this is how far back I go, you're gonna laugh, but I remember at one point where they issued a sewer moratorium in Sparks that no more buildings could be built because they couldn't handle the sewer stuff. Absolutely, and there is a good deal of older infrastructure in the city of Reno, as well as in the city of Sparks. That infrastructure is what's sort of the backbone of, of any kind of growth, and that's an important kind of, infra that infrastructure matters for sustainable new growth in this community. Well, while you're growing, what's the one thing in Reno, how long have you been here now? I've been here 17 years. Okay, so they haven't found out yet? No. Okay, wait. what's the one thing that when people come to visit you, they are the most surprised about that they're not expecting to see? Oh, the city of Reno is just a totally vital and vibrant community of people interested in food and the outdoors, a lifestyle that's very associated with a kind of laid-back uh, way of being in the world. We're 25 miles from the Mount Rose ski area. We have the highest density of ski areas in North America for our a community of any size in this country. Uh, we had 24 feet of snow in January. That's going to mean people are skiing into June in this area. It's fantastic. But people love the kind of low, the quality of life here. The indicators for the quality of life are amazing, and people love it. And it still reminds me, even today, of Cowboys and Indians. It is a western city. There's no question about it. And we're in the high desert, so we're at the edge of the Great Basin on the edge of the eastern Sierra Nevada. And those two natural environments create sort of a mixture alongside Lake Tahoe and Pyramid Lake for one of the most vibrant outdoor communities in the country. I remember when I first came up here, I was amazed because you had named your airport after a guy who hadn't died yet, that's, Howard Cannon. That's right. Who was the senator, right? Correct. Th then he did die, and you changed the name of the airport. That's right. It's now <laughs> Reno Tahoe. He should have stayed airport. alive. He had the name. He had the airport. What's the matter? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Reno Tahoe Airport Authority has done a tremendous job in trying to help Reno become a more connected city across the West and across North America. There you go. Keep that going. This is flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You got to pay with plastic. If you have a Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. As I do every time I do this show, whenever I get a chance, and I tell this to people all the time and they look at me like I'm nuts, I always ask them this question. Whenever I'm visiting another city, 
or a town or a village, anywhere in the world, if I have the opportunity, where's the very first place I go to get information? No, it's not the visitor center. No, it's not the hotel concierge. It's the firehouse because the guys and women at the firehouse, they've been in everybody's hotel. They've been in everybody's casino. They've been in everybody's restaurant. They've been in everybody's house. They've been everywhere. They know where to go. They know where not to go. They have their, their finger on the pulse of everything, and they're the most cool guys. And I say this, of course, because I am also a fireman, so not in the interest of full disclosure, that's a self-serving remark. I, please forgive me. But the concept remains the same. Uh, these guys know everything. And so I'm honored today to welcome the uh, fire chief of Reno, Dave Cochran. How are you, sir? Very good. Thank you for having me. Did you like that introduction? I loved it. <laughs> have you been in everybody's house? Just about. I have. I have. I mean, you nailed it. When you're and you've been a firefighter here for what 17 years, uh, almost 19 now. Oh, excuse me, but who's yeah, counting? All yeah. right, uh, but you first came, you came up the ranks. I did, I started as a firefighter in 1998, and I think I've helped class just, A, uh, yes, ah, helped just about every position in the department. So, interior, exterior, everything, everything. Wow, see, I, I have glasses and a beard, so I'm exterior, exactly. You know what? Because <laughs> yep. I can't get a good fit on the Scott packs, you know, right? But be that as it may, we still do the job. What about Reno for you is, is your biggest challenge um, in terms of not just firefighting but education as well? You know, the, the challenge, we have such a diverse city. We have uh, 77 high-rises, more than Sacramento, so we have those type of threats. We have wildland urban interface, a very transient population because of the high tourist population that comes and goes. And that brings up an interesting point because – I went riding with with the paramedics and the, and, the, and the Clark County fire guys in Las Vegas. I have never seen harder working fire guys. They, they're we went out on one night. We had like thirty eight calls in a shift, thirty eight calls, and most of them were medical, because people are visiting. They're not paying attention. They're not taking their meds. Uh, there's the heat factor, right? Uh, and pe people just get nuts because they, of course what stays in what happens in Vegas ends up at the Clark County Fire Department. <laughs> right. uh, I'm assuming you have somewhat of a similar situation here because of the casinos and the tourism population. We absolutely do. You combine that with the fact that we are at elevation, so we get a lot of people coming up from, say, sea level. And they're not adjusted. They're not adjusted. Um, they try to do too much, overexert, um, just not prepared for the elevation. And uh, you, the other factors you identify leads to a high call volume. Now, in Las Vegas, the fire department there has complete carte blanche to go into any casino at any time and interrupt a craps game if they have to to save a life. I'm assuming you have that same ability here. Absolutely. And you do it all the time. We do. What's the biggest source of your of your calls? Like you mentioned, it's the medical calls. Yeah. Uh, 72 to 74% of our calls are medical, and we are extremely busy. We're busier than all the other fire departments in northern Nevada combined. Combined? Combined. Wow. Now, I'm sure one of your recommendations is hydrate. It is. It, don't overexert. Hydrate. You know, know your limitations. Bring your medication. You mentioned that as well. That's a problem. Yeah, you, you must do that. Now let's get to the fun part of our conversation. All right? I'm, I'm looking at you now as my tour guide, Chief. Where do you like to hang out? Where do you like to go for a meal that nobody knows about, that, that, that's a, just a cool place in Reno, that's not in the guidebook, not the, you know, and, that not, and that's not somebody cooking something at the firehouse? You know, a great little place, uh, kind of sneaky good for breakfast, too, is Los Patrios Taqueria over on Mill Street. Uh, great lunches, but I sneak in there for a breakfast burrito sometimes. And when you sneak in there, what are you ordering? I get a bacon and egg breakfast burrito. <laughs> Very good. Very good, and no EMT calls after that? Nope. <laughs> no. Okay. What about dinner? 
you know, great restaurant uh, just off our Midtown district is Soto. Uh, they have lunch as well, but great dinners there. And what's what's cool about that place? I mean, what would you recommend? You know, the it's just they have a very uh, broad menu, uh, not too heavy, very good, you know, fish, steak, whatever you like, great service, um, and just a nice atmosphere. Bottom line is, if somebody's visiting Reno, right, for the first time, or even their repeat visitor, can they come down and hang out with you guys? You know, our doors are literally always open because we're so busy. <laughs> <But we laughs> so you welcome- may not be home when they get there. That's true. Um, but we do welcome visitors. We had I got an email just last week from a family group that was in town. They stopped by one of our stations impromptu, got a tour, spent hour, hour and a half with them. They loved it. But do you do some more organized things? If I, if I went through like, like the pepper mill here to, to organize like a ride-along? Absolutely. You do that? We, we do ride-alongs. We, we try to reach out to the community. Uh, for example, next month in March, we're going to be doing reading in the schools. Um, so we have opportunities that you can take advantage, but we try to put ourselves out there as well. So, it's, see, I always think that if you get a chance, just get out there, contact the fire department, go down there. First of all, you'll learn about the, the restaurants that you just talked about, but more importantly than that, you get a chance to see it up close and personal. And if you understand the process, that's when you really value the product. You do. And, you know, a lot of that, I think, stems from the fact that we are customer service. That's what we do. We serve the public. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for a laugh. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. Uh, one of the things that you notice when you come to Reno, and we've talked about sustainable travel throughout the show, and what that definition means and how you can not only take advantage of it but work to achieve it, uh, there are always little surprises. And one of the surprises uh, here in, in Reno is right here at, at, the, at the Pepper Mill. Uh, and joining me now is uh, Dean Parker, who is the he's – he's a facilities guy, which means he knows where all the bodies are buried. But for forgetting that, he also knows basically how it all works. And I was really surprised to learn, which is why I'm happy to have you on the show – Geothermal energy. Yes. Right here at the hotel. That's correct. Tell me, I, I, I had no idea that Reno even had that. Oh, yes, we do. It's, uh, it's, it's underground water, heated by uh, volcanic activity. So Nevada But has, there, are no, there are no active volcanoes that I know. In, well, that, that's a good thing, yes. That's but a very have, good thing. <laughs> we have a lot of... It would change the definition of your job really quickly. <laughs> that, that's correct. It would, you'd be the head of lava. Probably. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But we do have a lot of lava underground. So what that lava does is it heats the underground water. Well, what we did is we drilled down to get it, and we drilled down. But did you know when this hotel was here that you had it? Not in the beginning. Uh, in the early 80s, we knew we had, uh, we had some homes up on the hill up here, residential homes, that was using geothermal to heat their homes. So we looked into that, and that was in the early 80s. So at that time, we drilled what we call shallow wells, about 1,000 feet deep. But what, okay, i got to ask the really stupid question. Sure. Someone comes up to you and says, hey, guess what, Dean? I think we have geothermal underneath the hotel. And then you go, great. How do we get it? I mean, you just get out of a hole? I mean, what do you do? Because, I mean, where is the expertise that allows you to know you can actually get it? Well, that's, that's the difficult thing about geothermal. you got to drill down to get it. It's like oil. Uh, you got to bring in drilling rigs. And the people that help us do that Which are, requires investment. That's correct. Very large investments. So, but that's not a, is that the public utility, or is that just you guys? That's just, that's just us privately. So you're off the grid. That's correct. Wow. So how long – okay, how far down did you have to go? Well, the deep wells are uh, 4,400 feet deep, and it took us 28 days, 24 hours a day to drill down to that level. To get down and say, oh, that's hot. Yes. 
Well, I want it hotter, but we got 173 degree water, which is phenomenal. And that's constant. That's constant. But then, of course, it's under pressure. That's correct. So what's so, so what's so important about 173 degree water is that my boilers, natural gas boilers, uh, burn natural gas, and we bring in 160 degree water. So we, when we drill down, they got the got the natural water source. It's at 173. So we're 13 degrees above my boiler rating. So you don't have to use the natural gas. That's correct. So can you figure out, can you quantify in a given week, month, year? Uh, obviously, you've recouped your investment based on savings, but how much are we talking about? Well, it's expensive. For the deep well, it costs us $6.5 million to uh, turnkey it. So that was a 28-day turnkey. We spent about $9.7 million in the whole geothermal program. But what's that And mean? what year was that? That was in 2009 when we drilled deep. So we're about seven, eight years later. That's correct. Have you recouped that investment yet? Oh, yes. Really? And, and this is what we saved. Uh, when we bring up the 173-degree water at 1,200 gallons per minute, that replaced my boilers. Well, I run my boilers year-round. In the, in the wintertime, two boilers. Summertime, one boiler. We consume. So all that water is coming up under pressure. That's correct. It's like zooming up. It's zooming up. So... For me to run my boilers, we consume 2.6 million uh, therms of natural gas. That pricing is about $2.2 million a year to purchase that. I now have my boilers shut down. So we're saving $2.2 million a year. I've spent uh, $6.5 million to turnkey it. So if you do the math, it's three years uh, rate of return on the And now you're, now you're in the black. That's correct. Okay, stupid question. When we talk about geothermal energy, we're not talking about the water itself, are we? Yes, we are. So that means when I turn the shower on, I'm, I'm getting geothermal water? Well, no, this is where it gets complicated. No kidding. That's why, <laughs> by the way, this is, why, this is why I failed high school. This, okay, go ahead. <laughs> geothermal water, when we bring it up in the raw state, it can't, you don't see it, touch it, smell it. It comes into an enclosed loop system. So what comes up goes back down on the ground. So Mother Earth then reheats it, comes back up, goes back down on the ground. So you never see it. What it does, it goes through a heat exchanger, and this is where it gets complicated. That heat exchanger, in turn, heats my, what we call the boiler loop, chemically treated water. That chemically treated water then heats heat exchangers that heat your domestic water for showers. And it also heats the hotel. That's correct. So if I turn my thermostat up, it's it basically powered by that. That's correct. So our pools are heated by geothermal. Your domestic water is heated by geothermal. Your showers that you take, that domestic water is heated by geothermal. Amazing. It is. It's all geothermal. It's all geothermal. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now I radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh? For those of you who have not been to the, to the Pepper Mill or to Reno, but especially the Pepper Mill, you know, every hotel chooses to decorate their lobby in public spaces in, in different ways. And uh, when I first walked in the lobby and I, I, to this hotel about six or seven months ago, uh, I noticed that at about every 20 or 30 feet, there were huge, beautiful screens that looked to be beautiful, high-resolution color photos. And I said, oh, that's nice. And I'd look in there. I'd see, the, you know, I'd see Nepal or I'd see Portofino or I'd see, uh, you know, I'd, I'd see different scenes from all over the world. And then something caught my eye. And I looked back and said, wait a minute, there's a bird flying by. And, and all, there's there's a boat going by. There, I mean, it's like, wait a minute. And these were all, it's called Windows of the World. Um, and what it is, and we're talking big screen stuff. And you find yourself standing there and just staring at it because you want to see who's going to come by next. 
um, it's it's basically like you have a a, a, a very sophisticated webcam, if you will, uh, in, in a fixed location everywhere in the world all the time, and yet it's projected in high resolution uh, right there on, the, on a huge screen right next to the check-in desk, right next to the restaurants, right down the hallways. It's amazing. And so I had to figure out who did this. Well, the guy who did this is a guy named Joe Ness, and he's here right now. How did you do this? Oh, Boy, because you uh, literally had to go all around the world. We went all around the world. In fact, I've been around the world three or four times, all the continents, including Antarctica. And we we created this thing by setting up our camera. And you reacted, by the way, Peter, exactly how we wanted people to react, where we wanted to set up a camera. We wanted it to look like a photo. And then maybe the only thing you see is uh, Yosemite Falls with framed by a couple of trees. And then you look close and you see the falls move. Yeah. Using simple techniques with high quality imagery to have a powerful image. And we basically have been doing it for 10 years now, and it's been a great success. But you pick a location, you set up your gear, and you just yeah. sit there. Yeah. Well, we sit there for tw- 20 seconds to a couple minutes, and then we move on. We, we go, we just got back, as a matter of fact, from um, the Himalayas and Mount Everest. And we go on a trip, and we'll come back with 500. High quality, I'd like to say National Geographic level images. And uh, uh, and we add it to a library with over 10,000 images right now that plays randomly. And that's the power. It I mean, this randomly. is, I mean, if you'll excuse the expression, this is the world's largest screensaver. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I mean, yeah. it really is. Yeah. And it's everywhere in the hotel. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing. What was your most difficult shoot? Um, I would say. Or your most challenging? I would say the. Uh, perhaps the gorillas in Rwanda. We, uh, we did a trek uh, in Rwanda, and literally we, we hiked with a whole crew of uh, porters and guides through what we call vegetable cliffs. The, uh, the, the terrain was so steep, they had to use machetes to cut holes through. The, uh, and this is just to get 30 seconds of video. That's right. And then and we get there, and uh, with all the work, uh, I was wondering, because you only get an hour with these gorillas. They're extremely endangered. Well, sure enough, a gorilla opened the canopy and exposed his face, and my tears started running. And uh, ever since that— And the at, camera was rolling. The camera was rolling, and ever since then, I got amazing stuff. But it was difficult to get. The harder you work for it, the better it feels. I've had dates like that. <laughs> Oh, that's another story. But bottom line is, how many how many different locations have you shot? Now? Oh, I can't n- number them. I mean, hundreds, hundreds. Really? I mean, everything. From is there a place you've always wanted to shoot that you haven't yet? Believe it or not, I'd like to get into the little uh, tougher areas. I would love to go. People think I'm crazy, but I'd love to shoot some uh, culture in, let's say, Tehran and some of those areas. But they're a little difficult to travel in these days. No, they're not. They're doing tours to, the, to Iran all the time. Well, I would love to get into those areas. I think yeah. it would add a lot of culture to this area, and I think... Uh, if you yeah. don't mind playing by their rules and you know who's in control, you can go just about anywhere. Think yeah. about that. You can go to North Korea. People are touring, touring there all the time. Yeah. You can go to Tehran. Uh, you, you can go to some pretty crazy places. Yeah, right? and, and you know, quite frankly, when we go there, we are actually trying... And we've been to China quite a few times, and we just got back from Tibet. Sure. And uh, uh, we always play by the rules, and quite <laughs> frankly, we usually show these countries in their best light. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. But I would walk 500 miles an hour. 
I remember in 1971, my first trip here, I was going between Reno and Tonopah and Las Vegas and ended up in Winnemucca. And I said, wait a minute, what's wrong with this picture? There were a couple of casinos there, uh, very small casinos. Uh, uh, prostitution was legalized. There were some brothels there. And then there were these unbelievable restaurants run by Basques. I'm going, wait a minute, who airlifted them? What? How did they get here? Well, guess what? They're still here. And in fact, there's a great story attached to that. And joining me now, the head of the Basque Studies Program at the University of Nevada, Reno, Sandy Ott, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much, Peter. So I have to ask the question, how did they get here? How did they get here? Well, they many of them first came as, as sheep herders. And uh, having not found their fortune in the, in the California gold rush, they, they, they came to Nevada and other parts of the Great Basin area. And um, the... Uh, the community in Reno it remains vibrant. It's not as big as the community in Boise, um, but uh, at I am at. There's a Basque community in Boise too. There's a very vibrant Basque community at Boise, um, and one in Chino. There's one in, in in San Francisco. There are many, many vibrant Basque communities in the American West. And how did you get involved in studying the Basques? By uh, great fortune and accident, uh, I was. I, Isn't that the story of everything? <laughs> Just about. Fortune combined with accident? <laughs> That's right. And a little bit of luck? That's right. I was uh, had finished my, my MLIT at Oxford, and I'd done field work in two Gaelic-speaking communities, one in Ireland and one in Scotland. And I thought, where next for my for my doctorate? And you just woke up one morning and said, Reno? <laughs> no. Um, a friend of mine at Oxford said, why not the Basques? And I remembered as a child, um, I, I when I was four years old, I was on a, a ranch in Arizona owned by a Basque family. And they were my playmates. And then when I was a senior at Pomona College, in Chi- I went to Chino, California, for to a Basque restaurant, El Centro Basco. Pomona is- College, one of the Claremont colleges. That's right. I, I used to teach there. Did you really? I did. <laughs> Keep going. Okay. And it was in El Centro Basco, in Chino, uh, I went, I was astounded to hear a strange language in one of the private rooms. And there were a lot of men in there playing cards. I later discovered... Now, that, that was a restaurant. It was a restaurant. It was a Basque restaurant, and the men were speaking Basque, and I asked um, about them, and uh, I just went back there last fall, uh, that was since 1976 when I was last there. Anyway, um, and then at Oxford, um, someone said, why not Basques? They're a really interesting people, and uh, so I contacted the founder of the Center for Basque Studies here at UNR, and Bill Douglas, and Bill had uh, had has written two books about Spanish Basque communities um, over there, and he said, "Why not the French Basques?" So I took his offer, and he sent me the name of a friend in the French Basque country, and off I went. And I started to learn Basque at Oxford from someone who had some knowledge of it, but basically I learned Basque through French, and that's how it began in 1976. And then you came back after 30 years living abroad. Wow! Yeah. Wow! 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 <laughs> how did the Basques assimilate? How do they survive? How do they flourish? Um, and how has the community here in Reno and other parts of Nevada embraced them? The Basques um, all over the world are incredibly proud of their heritage and culture. And uh, sometimes when our Basque colleagues and friends come over here f- uh, from the Basque country to attend picnics and, and festivals, they are completely struck by the extent to which the cultural pride is uh, is so vibrant here in particularly in the American West but also there's a, a strong Basque community in New York City um, and 
I think this uh, the the ethnic pride here in the states among Basque Americans emanated from the first Basque festival, which took place in Reno Sparks in 1959, and it was uh, there had been other picnics and festivals before. The first, I think, was in Buffalo, Wyoming, I think in ni- in the early. But part how of the 20th did the local century. community ad- address to that? I mean, how did they adjust to it? Um, well, and we know from uh, oral interviews and, and, and documents, sometimes the Basques were not uh, regarded highly right. um, in the American West as sheep herders, and they were some called... Like the Portuguese in Hawaii. Yeah, ethnic prejudice did exist, and yeah. they were sometimes... There were ethnic slurs like Blas- ba- black Bascos, um, and the uh, some, some Basques... Uh, did not want to celebrate their heritage, but wanted to become American. Um, but an awful lot of them decided that they wanted to celebrate their heritage. But the cool thing is, not only are they here, great restaurants. Absolutely. Um, and What's your favorite Basque dish? Quickly. Oh, I don't know. The American Basque cuisine. She studies them, but does not eat the food, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. I do. we got to get you out of the bubble. <laughs> Sandy Ott. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.